So let's go ahead and pray. We're going to open up our Bibles. If you have your Bible with you, please open it up. We're going to be picking up where we left off in Genesis chapter 13. And we are studying through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. This is a great book, which is all about Jesus. You say, is it really about Jesus? Absolutely. It's the book of beginnings. It's the book of foundations. And as we've seen, as we will continue to see week by week, it's a great book about the gospel. It's a book that gives us the beginning of the gospel, the foundation of the gospel. It gives us the foundation of our understanding that we need to to really grasp why, why the gospel is good news. It tells us about the foundation, the beginning of sin, the foundation, beginning of redemption and promise and covenant covenant and salvation. And so ultimately this is a book that's about Jesus. Truly the whole of the Bible is about Jesus. So let's go ahead and pray as we get into our message today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in every page, in every story, Lord, we see the glory of who you are. We see the glory of the gospel. We see Jesus, Lord. We see your redemption that, Lord, you you cared about us. You loved you loved us so much that you became a man. You humbled yourself, Lord. You are the humble king, and you are the king of righteousness. You came and lived the life that we could never live. You died the death that we should have died, Lord, so that you could redeem us and save us from the pit, so that you could give us not only new life and eternal life, but, Lord, abundant life here and now. And, Lord, we ask that today, too, Lord, that you would just fill us up, Lord, that we would truly receive the fatness and the richness of all that comes with walking with you, of all that it means to know you and have a right standing before you. And Lord, I pray that all of us here today, we wouldn't leave without a right standing before you, without knowing what truly makes us rich. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The title, if you looked in your bulletin of our message today, is Two Ways to Get Rich. Uh, And the focus of our study is really going to be looking at two different men, uh, Abram and Lot. Lot is Abram's, he's kind of like his redneck nephew. He's a bit of a knucklehead. Abram's always having to bail him out, and we're going to see him have to bail him out here in our story. Some of you are really going to relate to this. You're going to say, I know who that guy is because I have a bunch of those people in my life. Hopefully, you are not that person in somebody else's life. But as we look at Lot and Abraham, or or Abram, at this point, our our focus is going to be looking at two divergent attitudes, two different attitudes about what constitutes wealth, and how our faith in the true and living God and our relationship with him should affect our attitudes towards money, possessions, and what it means to be rich. And what we see is that God's word teaches us that there's a difference between having a lot of stuff and being rich in the truest, deepest sense of the word. To be truly rich, what we see in the Bible, is to have a right standing before God. And what we're going to see is that Abram, in these chapters, he pursued that kind of wealth. The true wealth, which is really a quality of life right? It's a quality of life both physically and spiritually which only comes through walking with, uh, walking in a relationship with God. What we're going to see though is that Lot on the other hand he pursued only material wealth, only material gain. And my hope is that as we contrast these two men and their attitudes towards wealth that we would desire and choose to live not like, not like Lot did 
but like Abram did, that we would make the choices that Abram did so that we could truly become people who are rich in the truest sense of the word. So today we're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14 and dipping slightly into chapter 15 of Genesis. It's a big chunk, but I'm going to break it down for you like this. Uh, The first part is going to be about the faith of Abraham and the worldliness of Lot. And the second part is going to be about the faith of Abram and the riches of God. So let's begin. The faith of Abram and the worldliness of Lot. And we're going to start uh, chapter 13 from the beginning for context. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had. And Lot went with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had first made an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord... And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So if you remember our study last week, here's what happened essentially. Abram had a moment of freaking out. And uh, he took his eyes off the promise of God. He put his eyes on his circumstances. And as a result, he, he took things into his own hands and he went down to Egypt, which was really a bad move. And in Egypt, he did something really crazy and terrible. He sold his wife to Pharaoh into Pharaoh's harem. And that's uh, pretty extreme. So, Pharaoh, so God was actually gracious to Abram. Pharaoh gave Abram his wife back. And on top of it all, Pharaoh said, you know what? You remember what I paid you for your wife? All that stuff and servants and animals? Well, go ahead and just keep it all. So what we see here is that Abram is coming out of Egypt. He's totally humbled. But he also comes out of Egypt a very wealthy man. So, so much so that the land is not even able to accommodate Lot and Abram and all their possessions and stuff. Maybe you feel like that in your house. You're like, well, I thought our house was big, but now it's full of stuff. Well, just imagine that they've got mountains and land and they've got so much stuff, they just don't fit anymore. That's pretty, uh, pretty rich. They had a lot of stuff. So let's go on from verse 8. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Dun, dun, dun. Then the men of Sodom were, now the men of Sodom were very wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is pretty ominous here. We, we can kind of see what's coming down the line, right? Um, but I love the heart of Abraham, right? Or Abram. He says, Lot, I don't want there to be strife between you and me. We're brothers. We're family. I don't want to be at odds with you because of money or business. It's not worth it. He says, so if this business we're doing together is causing strife to our relationship, then maybe we should just 
part ways in our business relationship so we can save our family relationship and not have this strife and tension. Have any of you ever been in that situation before? Maybe you can relate to that. You, you went into business with a friend or a family member and the issues of the workplace end up messing up your relationship with that person. You were great friends. You had a good relationship until you got into business together. That happens. Probably some of you have experienced that. But I love the heart of Abram. He says, you know what, Lot? We are kinsmen. We are brothers. And, and my relationship with you is more important to me than making money and doing business. So you know what? You can have first dibs of the land. I'll let you take choice. Go ahead. Whatever you pick, I'm cool with it. So what does Lot do? He's the younger man. Don't forget everything he has has essentially been given to him through his relationship with Abram. But here's what Lot does. He spies out the choicest piece of land and he takes that for himself and he gives the leftovers to Abram. He's like that guy at the party who he scopes out like the best piece of cake, then cuts in line, you know, elbows all the women and children, gets his piece of cake and sits in the corner and eats it by himself. We used to have these potlucks at our church in Eger when I was in Hungary. And, uh, and after a while, we had to start regulating them. Because here's what would happen. Uh, as soon as I would say amen, you'd have these guys, they thought that they were in the Olympics or something. They'd like bolt out of their chairs. They'd go back to the back, load up their plate, sit in the corner, and, and they made sure that they ate very well. You know what I mean? To the point that the people who are serving, you know, serving other people, bringing them stuff they needed to eat and, and you know, cups and all that, they didn't get anything to eat. But there are these few guys who, you know, they usually didn't bring anything to contribute, but they made sure that they ate very well. Lot was that guy. He was one of these guys, always looking out for number one, right? When I see Abram offering to let Lot have his choice of the land, I see a man who's acting in faith. Because faith is this. I would summarize faith in these terms. Faith is trusting the promises of God and trusting in the God of the promises. And that's what Abram's doing here. We see that, um, you know, what we see contrasted here is the faith of Abram versus the worldliness of Lot. And we're going to see this in a few different ways. Abram here, he's believing that uh, the promises of God are true and he's believing in the God of the promises. He is an elderly man with an elderly wife and no children, but he's believing that his elderly wife will become a mother because God told him he would be a great nation. He's a homeless man with no children, but he's believing that God will make him a great nation. And he's acting on that basis of that belief. Abram's saying, you know what? I've taken matters into my own hands before. I've gone down to Egypt. I've tried to look out for myself. I've tried to bless myself and hedge my bets and make sure that I had no vulnerabilities and no one could hurt me or take advantage of me. But God rebuked me. And I see now that that kind of thing is worldly. It's not right. It's not acting in faith. So now I'm going to trust God. And if he said he'll protect me and he'll take care of me and he'll give me an inheritance, then I'm just going to let him take care of me and I'll try and keep my fingerprints off of it. But Lot really isn't concerned with the things of the Lord. This is the great contrast between these two men. Last week we talked about how Abram's life was characterized by two objects. Do you remember that? A tent and an altar. He was a man who set up a tent everywhere he went because he was a pilgrim in this world and he set up an altar because he was a worshiper. Well, Lot is also a guy who lives in tents 
But the difference is that he's not a man who builds altars. We never see him build an altar. We never see Lot call upon the name of the Lord. We never get the impression that he hears the voice of the Lord. He doesn't pray. He never seeks God's will. He is a man who is looking at things on a purely material level. And what we see in the scriptures is is interesting. In the New Testament, it refers to Lot as righteous Lot. And that is a big mystery when you read the Old Testament. You're like, how is this guy righteous? But what it comes down to is that Lot was, in fact, a believer. He had some faith in God. But what we see here is that although he was a believer, he's living on a very worldly level. He's thinking and planning his life out in a very worldly, materialistic level. He's looking at market share instead of seeking the Lord. He's looking at cost analysis and looking at strategic business plans. What he can do to make himself an affluent man and reach his goals He's looking at where the greenest pastures are, the best place to make money is, but not seeking God's will. Not building altars, not worshiping, not considering even where the best place to raise his family would be. So Lot chooses this land around Sodom and Gomorrah, and I mean even thinking about that. Hey, I'm just going to move my family to Sodom and Gomorrah. That sounds like a bad idea, right? Lot chooses for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, and it says that he moved out towards the east. Now, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in the Bible, and in the Bible, this idea of going east is very symbolic, especially in the Old Testament. East is the place where you get further from God. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that Adam and Eve went out from the presence of the Lord to the east of Eden. That's very symbolic. And, and then Cain, do you remember that? He kills his brother. God gives him the chance to repent. He says, I'm not going to repent. And it says that he headed out from the presence of the Lord, again, to the east of Eden, even further east. And here Lot goes east, and that's very symbolic. He goes towards Sodom and Gomorrah. What is Lot doing here? We could summarize it like this. He is getting farther away from God because he is in search for economic prosperity only. Okay, so not only does Lot choose this land, uh, but he moves towards Sodom and then he actually moves into the city of Sodom as we're going to see in chapter 14. He becomes a resident of Sodom. He joins the uh, recreation club, you know, he gets all involved with all the activities. Not only is he going to live in Sodom, but in chapter 19, he goes way beyond that and we see that he actually becomes a leader of the city of Sodom. So Lot does, in fact, become rich and powerful. That was his goal, and he attained it. He becomes rich and powerful. But what we're going to see is that Lot ends up paying a very high price for his decision in the long run. In the end, it's going to cost him his family. He's going to end up with his wife dead and his daughters defiled. And we have to ask, is that worth it? Is it worth it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Is it worth it to gain the whole world and lose your family? To get rich and powerful, all it will cost you is your wife and your kids? A lot of people have gone down that road. They've sacrificed their wife and kids on the altar of financial prosperity, but it is certainly not worth it. We have to agree on that. The moral of this story is this. When you determine where God will have you, Make sure that you factor into the, occasion, into the equation what God's will is and what's good for your family, not just what looks good on paper. Abram, on the other hand, what does he do? He trusts God 
and takes a bad piece of land, he makes a decision that does not look good on paper, but God blesses him in it. Check this out from verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. God sees Abram's heart. You know, he tells him, Abe, I, I, you know, when I hear God talking to Abram, he calls him Abe. So he says, Abe, I see your heart. I see that you made some decisions that didn't look good on paper, but I see that you did it in generosity to your ungrateful nephew, just like I'm generous to, and gracious to people who oftentimes don't appreciate it. But he says, I want you to know this. This land, although it doesn't look as good as that land that Lot took, this is the land of blessing for you. This is the land where I'm going to prosper you, where I'm going to bless you. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Lot's over there trying to make himself great, trying to make his own name great, trying to make himself rich and blessed. But he says, Abram, you trusted me, and in this land, in this land which is not as good, you know, on the outside as it might seem, as that land that Lot chose, this is the land of blessing for you. This is the place where I'm going to bless you. And he might even have said, you know, it, it may not look like it right now, Abram, but just keep walking by faith and not by sight, and you're going to see that what I'm doing, to, doing for you, I'm going to fulfill all my promises. And, and look at what Abram does. He builds an altar and he worships the Lord again. This is what we see him doing. This is what he was all about. And that is what we should do. Whenever the Lord speaks to us, we need to respond to that. I, I love that about Abram. God speaks to him and he responds. And he responds in worship and thanksgiving and praise. And we, we would do well to do the same whenever God speaks to us. A lot of times too though, I think that we can find ourselves in the place of Abram, right? Where we have these promises from God, but we don't really see how the reality of our life at this moment matches up with the promise of God, you know? Like we have these promises from God that in Christ we are victorious, but we don't always feel victorious in our circumstances, right? We have these promises from God that he's working all things together for our good and his glory, but you know, then you lose your job, the doctor comes in and says, it's cancer, someone close to you passes away, and you wonder, you know, really, how, how does this promise fit together with the reality of my life? Because I don't see it right now. I'm not feeling very victorious at this moment. Abram didn't see it either. You've got to believe that he wasn't always feeling it. And we'll see that as we go on through this, through this story of Abram. He was promised that he would be a great nation with many descendants and a homeland. But his current reality does not match up with that. At the moment, he is a homeless old man without any kids and a wife who's barren. That does not look good at all. And he's probably got to be thinking sometimes, Lord, are you sure you got the right guy here? Because my neighbor over there, he's got like 12 kids. So maybe he's the guy that you wanted to make a nation out of. You know, they're already on the way. You know, are you sure you got me? Did you get the address wrong? Is there some kind of mix-up? 
But Abram chooses to believe the promise by faith, and he acts on the basis of that promise, believing that it's true, even though he has no idea how it's going to work out practically and be fulfilled. And that reminds me, that attitude so much reminds me of what I see in the Apostle Paul in one of my favorite sections, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul, Paul says an interesting thing about who he is as a Christian believer. He says this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. He says, We are treated as impostors, but yet we are true. We are treated as unknown, yet we are well known. We are treated as dying, and behold, we live. We are punished, but yet not killed. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. I love that. You know what he's saying? He says, here's who I am in the eyes of the world. Here's what I look like on the outside. I look like I got nothing. I look like I'm just getting beat up all the time and sorrowful and weeping and having a terrible life. But here's who I am in Christ. And this is the reality that I live in. This is who I am. I know this is my true identity, where I'm really at. And really, that's, that's where we got to be at, that no matter what our current material circumstances, this is the life of faith in the promises of God, is that we choose to say, yes, that, that is who I am. And whatever circumstances I am in, that is who I am. If my life, I look sorrowful, inside I'm rejoicing, because in Christ, I have everything. I'm a rich man. So Lot moves on to Sodom. And, uh, and it looks like a good move on paper, right? It looks like his, his uh, bottom line is going to increase. And in fact, it does. But let's see how that worked out for him. Let's, uh, let's check out chapter 14. And uh, for sake of time, I really don't want to read the whole section out loud. Also because there's a lot of words in there that are really hard for me to pronounce. But if you got your Bible, check out chapter 14. There's a bunch of names that don't mean a whole lot to us. So I'm going to summarize for you what's going on here. Lot moves to Sodom. He moves into town, becomes a resident, and then he finds himself in the middle of a tribal war. There are two factions here. There's the one faction is an alliance of four kings, and there's a, there's a local alliance of five kings. And the four kings are invading the Jordan Valley, and they defeat the, the local confederation of five kings. And what they do is that they take Lot captive and they confiscate all of his property and possessions. So let's pick up the story in chapter 14, verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram puts together a small army of men and he goes and they, you know, extract Lot and they get all this stuff back. Pretty impressive here. What's even more impressive is if you think about this. Abram here proves that he is capable of putting together an army and winning battles. But yet, even though he has this promise from God that God's going to give him all the land of Canaan, we never see Abram form an army and go to battle against the Canaanites. We never see him go and take them on and take them down. 
Because this is Abram's faith, essentially. He's saying, I've done the taking it into my own hands thing before. But if God says, I'm going to give it to you, then I'm going to wait for God to show me how he's going to give it to me. I'll just be patient. God will take care of it. I don't want to have to go and make it happen on my own. I don't want to get my fingerprints all over it. Once again, this is the faith of Abram contrasted with the worldly thinking of Lot, right? Who is doing everything, striving as hard as he can to get powerful and get rich. And eventually he does attain it, but along with that wealth and power comes a lot of problems. Interesting that Proverbs 10.22 says this, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no trouble with it. So when God blesses you, he doesn't add trouble with it. But Lot here, he gets rich, he gets powerful, but there's a lot of trouble that comes along with it. And here we see an example of that. As I said later on, you guys know the story, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to have a lot more trouble. The Bible really lays it out for us like this. There are four kinds of people in regard to money. It's obviously very simplified, but let me, let me uh, lay this out for you. There are four kinds of people as regards money in the Bible. There are those who are righteous and rich. There are those who are righteous and poor. And there, there are those who are unrighteous rich and unrighteous poor. The thing is that most people in our world, right, they're concerned with only the two categories of rich or poor. That's the only thing that runs through their mind. Uh, but the Bible, on the other hand, is very much concerned with just the opposite. It's not concerned with rich or poor. It's concerned with righteous or unrighteous. And you can be a righteous poor person. You know, this is, I would define that as a person who swings a hammer or works very hard, teaches in a school or whatever you do. You work hard and you feed your family. You do something noble, but you're still struggling to make ends meet. You can also be unrighteous poor, which is you're just lazy, and that's why you don't have any money. The Bible doesn't say anything good about that. You can be righteous rich also, you know. You work very hard. God blesses you, shows you favor financially. Praise the Lord. You can also be unrighteous rich. And that's somebody who gets wealthy through uh, corner cutting, you know, shortcutting, scheming, even lying, taking advantage of others. And really the key is not to say, I want to be rich or I want to be poor or it's more noble to be poor or it's better to be rich. The key is really to say, I want to be righteous, right? And, and, and if God wants to make me rich, then praise be to God. And if not, then praise be to God because I'd rather be righteous and poor without all the trouble that comes from being unrighteous and rich. And that's exactly what Proverbs 15 verse 16 says, where it says, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So if God should make me rich, then I'm able to bless others with the blessings that I've been blessed with. We talked about this two weeks ago, about being a conduit of blessing. And we say, praise be to God. But my main goal in life is not to get rich. My main goal is to be righteous, is to have a right standing with God. So Lot's problem is not, is essentially this. He's pursuing wealth and not righteousness. He's, he's trying to get rich, but not holy. Jesus said, if we will seek first the kingdom of God, then all the rest will be added to it. But the thing is that if you seek those other things, material things first, primarily, then oftentimes it is at the expense of the kingdom of God. 
So again, Lot settles in the city of Sodom. And I always think about this. What if Lot had said, well, I want the land of Canaan and you can have the valley of Jordan. What would have happened? Would Abram have ended up in Sodom? I don't think so. And here's why. Because if you look at Abram, it was his policy that he would never move into the cities of the Canaanites. I assume that just like Sodom was a wicked city, there were probably wicked cities amongst the Canaanites and the Perizzites in the land of Canaan. But Abram doesn't move into their cities. He doesn't get involved in the stuff that they're doing. Lot, on the other hand, jumps in headfirst into the wicked way of life and the spirit of Sodom. So you see, uh, I would put it this way. Lot is like a thermometer and not like a thermostat, right? Uh, Some people are like thermometers, some people are like thermostats, right? A thermometer changes according to the environment that it finds itself in. It conforms to the temperature of the surroundings. A thermostat, rather, sets the temperature, right? It It defines what the climate will be of that place. Lot is a thermometer rather than a thermostat. He moves into Sodom and he conforms right into the way of life in the city. And, and actually, I would say, what about Abram? Is he a thermostat? No. Actually, you know what? If I look at Abram, I would say, I think Abram has the same tendency. I think that he has a tendency to be like a thermometer as well. Because what we see is Abram goes down to Egypt, and he's easily swayed into that way of life. When Abram's father was with him in Haran, that entire time, he didn't obey the Lord by moving out and following God to Canaan. So I think that Abram actually probably had that tendency as well. The difference is this, that I see in Abram is that he was a man, in my opinion, who knew his weaknesses. He knew his tendency to be like a thermometer, to be easily influenced by those around him. And since he knows his personal weakness, he sets up boundaries for himself. And I think that's very wise. How about you? Let's ask ourselves, are you a thermometer or a thermostat? Ideally, right, we all want to be thermostats for the Lord, right? But practically, we have to say that many of us have the tendency to be thermometers. We, we have a tendency sometimes, some of us, to be people who are easily influenced by those around us, easily swayed one way or another by the company that surrounds us. And if that is you, then... No, no condemnation here. Just all you need to do is be like Abram and be wise and set up boundaries for yourself and in how you spend your time and, and who you spend it with. And you need to be intentional about it like Abram was. He was a man who said, you know what? I know that that place isn't going to be good for me. I know that I'll just fall in line with what those guys are doing. So I'm just not going to put myself in that place. You know, last week we talked about how as Christians we shouldn't seek to isolate ourselves from the world. We should be missional people. We want to do incarnational ministry, which means that we bring the light of the gospel into dark places. We bring the hope of the gospel into hopeless places. But the other side of the coin is that we also have to set up boundaries if we have weaknesses. If you struggle with alcoholism, this is the obvious example, right? But if you struggle with alcoholism, you aren't going to go be missional in a bar. That would be unwise. That's your area of weakness. And and if, if you know your own area of weakness, it's important. Set up boundaries for yourself. That is simply wise. So that's the other side of the coin. That's the balance we've got to find between being missional and incarnational 
and between being wise and setting up boundaries. So Abram, he says, I'm not willing to move into the cities of the Canaanites in order to get rich. And that, again, is the contrast between the faith of Abram and the worldliness of Lot. Abram's unwilling to compromise his convictions. He's unwilling to put his relationship with God at risk in order to receive financial gain. Because getting rich was not his aspiration in life. He was rich, but that wasn't his main thing. His main aspiration at this point in life, he's been through a lot, he's an old man, and he says, I want to walk with God by faith. I want to obey him. I want to please him. He's been so good to me. He's given me an identity. He's given me an inheritance. And I just want to walk with him and please him. And it's worth asking ourselves that question. What is my aspiration in life? Is it to make a name for myself? Is it to become someone great? Or is it rather to know the Lord and say, Lord, I want to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you and glorifies you. And whatever you want to do with my life as as regards material things, have your way, Lord. I'll praise you either way. Because you've blessed me, you've given me an identity, and you've given me an inheritance. So let's see what happens next. We're going to continue from verse 17. After his return from the defeat of, who that's hard, Ked, Kedor Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out and met him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be, the, be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you, he delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Abner, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. All right, so here's here's what's up. Abram has this great military victory, and then two kings come out to meet him in the Valley of the Kings. One of them is the king of Sodom, and the other one is the king of Salem, right? These are really polar opposites. They are meant to be different. The king of Sodom is the guy who rules this wicked kingdom of Sodom. And he offers Abram a deal. He says, give me the people, and I will let you keep the spoils. I'll make you rich, Abram. The king of Sodom, he's like a shady character, right? And he's, uh, he's symbolic of Satan. And he says, make a deal with me. Abram, and I will make you rich. Compromise with me, and I will make you rich. But what does Abram tell him? He says, no way. I have chosen, that I I have lifted my hand to God, that I will make no compromises with you. I don't want anything you have to offer, and I will not get rich by making compromise with you. But the king of Salem, on the other hand, well, he's a very interesting character. His name is Melchizedek, right? Which means king of righteousness. And he is the king of Salem, which means the king of peace, the kingdom of peace. He's a priest of the Most High God. 
And he comes to Abram with bread and wine, the very same objects that Jesus will later bring to his disciples when he institutes the sacrament of communion because they speak of his broken body, his shed blood on the cross. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham in the, in the name of the Most High God, and Abram receives this blessing and then gives him a 10% of all that he has. This is the first example in the Bible of the idea of giving a tithe as an act of worship. So, so this Melchizedek, again, very mysterious character. If you look back at chapter 14, there's a list of kings who went to war. There you will find the king of Sodom, but you will not find the king of Salem. So, in other words, this guy just kind of appears out of nowhere. His name is King of Righteousness, he's from the Kingdom of Peace, and he's the priest of the Most High God. And that's interesting, right? Because as far as we knew up until this point, there is no priesthood. There is no organized religion. There's just guys like Abram who know God, and they build altars and call upon the name of the Lord. We didn't know about any organized system or any priesthood. Yet Abram recognizes Melchizedek as the priest of the God whom he knows, the God who speaks to him, the God who he worships, who leads him. In the book of Hebrews, we get more insight into who Melchizedek is. It says this in Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek is a man who has no beginning and no end. In other words, he's an eternal being. Furthermore, the Psalms and, and the book of Hebrews, they tell us that Jesus, the Messiah, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So what does all that mean? It means this. When we see Melchizedek here, we are seeing the first example in the Old Testament of a Christophany, which is an appearance of Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in the Old Testament. You know, Jesus, since he's God, he has no beginning, he has no end. He didn't come into being when he was born in that stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He existed eternally with the Father and is one with the Father. That's why, why God's word tells us this. It says in, 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 in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not made anything that was made. And that, that's why it's also so profound what it says in verse 14. It says, And that Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he adds this in verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now what all that means is this. When we see appearances of God meeting people in the Old Testament, these are Christophanies, which means they're appearances of Jesus before he came as the babe of Bethlehem. And, and that should just reinforce in our minds all the more that the whole Bible, every book, every chapter, it's ultimately all about Jesus. When we read Genesis, we're reading a great story about Jesus. So it's, it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life.
So again, the faith of Abraham and the worldliness of Lot. The wicked king of Sodom offers to make Abram rich. Abram won't do it. He's not willing to get rich by making a compromise with this man who is a picture, a representation of Satan. Lot, on the other hand, I think he would have happily made a compromise with him. In fact, he does kind of go into business with him because he becomes a leader in the city of Sodom. But Abram shows his faith in God and that he, would, he passes up an opportunity to get rich because he's not willing to compromise and make a deal with the king of Sodom. And finally, we'll wrap up with this. Not only do we see the faith of Abram contrasted with the worldliness of Lot, but we also see the faith of Abram and the riches of God. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Some of your translations say, I am your great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens, the number of the stars. If you're able to number them, he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. We've seen in our story today, Abram passed up opportunities to get rich. He was also generous, which hurt his bottom line. But he did it all because of his love for the Lord, and he did it all out of faith in the promise of the Lord. So God speaks to Abram. He says, Abe, I know you could have gotten rich by compromising and cutting a deal with the king of Sodom. I know that you gave up your wealth by being generous. You gave a tithe as an offering of worship. You were generous to that knucklehead nephew of yours. And I want you to know, Abe, that I am your shield. I'm going to protect you, Abe. I'm going to take care of you. Your times, your days are in my hands. And he says, I want you to know, Abram, your reward will be very great. You've given up very much because of your love for me. But your reward is going to be very great. And I love that translation, the old King James, that says, I am your shield and your very great reward. In other words, it's, it's as if God's saying to him, I am your reward. You may not be as rich as you could have been had you compromised with the king of Sodom, had you not been so generous. But because of your faith in my word to you, you got a relationship with me and your reward will be much greater than any material possession you could have ever earned on your own. And we we read this amazing phrase, Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's an extremely profound statement. What it means is that Abram was was, was an unrighteous man in his own right. He was a man who sinned. He was a man, we know that he worshipped false gods. He disobeyed God. But because Abram believed the promise of God to him, God reckoned him to be righteous. And what that means is that God gave to Abram his own righteousness as a free gift. And we see here what true wealth really is. It's a quality of life physically and spiritually, which comes from a relationship with God, lived by faith in his promises and obedience to his word. The gospel message is essentially this, that if you will believe in the promise of God to you, 
that in Jesus Christ, all your sins have been dealt with and paid for on the cross so that you can be forgiven and have eternal life. If you will believe that by faith, then God will account his righteousness to you as a gift. And righteousness, it means a right standing before God. It's interesting, this phrase, you know, counted to him as righteousness. This is a phrase which has its roots in banking and in accounting. It's kind of like this, and this is something I can relate to. You have a bank account, but it doesn't have any money in it. I know that some of you guys are like, yeah, I know what that's like, you know. And, uh, but then a very wealthy person comes around, and this is the part that I can't relate to, and they just put the, they just transfer, they wire transfer their whole fortune into your account. That's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. When we put our faith in the gospel, he accounts his riches to us in Christ. That's why Paul is able to say, I may have nothing outwardly, but in reality, I have Christ and therefore I possess everything. I am the richest man in the world. And Paul was able to say this too in Philippians 3, 7 through 9. He says, whatever gain I had in this world materially, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's saying, I gave up everything to follow Jesus. And in the end, I became the richest man in the world. Because I receive righteousness through faith in Christ, a right standing before God. So here's the message of this chapter and the message of God's word for us today. There's something which is much more valuable than money. There's a way to be rich in the truest sense of the word that has nothing to do with material possessions. To be truly rich is to have a right standing with God that gives you a quality of life that cannot be purchased, that cannot be worked for or earned. It can only be received by God's grace. And he freely promises it to all those who are willing to trust his promise. So let us therefore be people not like Lot, concerned only with the riches of this world, but let us be like Abram, who understands that to be truly rich is to have a right standing with God. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Abram. Lord, we thank you for this great contrast you bring us between Abram and Lot, Lord, that we would, we would see ourselves in it and we would be able to say, well, that's not where I want to go. I don't want to do what Lot did. I don't want to go down to Sodom and, and compromise just for the sake of getting rich. I don't want to put my family at risk. I don't want to put my relationship with you, Lord, at risk for the sake of material gain. Lord, thank you that in you, No matter what our circumstances are, Lord, we are the richest people in the world. You have blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, thank you that there is a reality of who we are in Christ that doesn't depend on our outward circumstances. And I thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign and you are good, Lord. And we just come before you now and we say, Lord, we want to be righteous. If there's anyone here today who says, I have never received the righteousness of Christ by faith in the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would impress it on their heart that they would do that now. And Lord, that all of us would have the desire to have a right standing before you and then let you take care of the rest. Lord, help us be people who seek first your kingdom and trust you for the rest. In Jesus' name, amen.